Dear Young Rocker is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Productions. I walk into the band practice room before Danny and the girls get there. I take a minute and just enjoy the air conditioning. I have no idea how the bands in the unair conditioned rooms get anything done. I came in here to talk to myself, to say, hey lady, don't bring your own baggage from high school band experiences here. Don't let your own insecurity in your ability to write a song glom onto these innocent children who have a chance to start off on the right foot and see songwriting as something anyone can do and that can be fun and not stressful at all. I take a couple breaths and try to put myself into the zen state of beginner's mind instead of a jaded musician in my 20s. I'll let my heart be like another kid in the band, excited to explore where the music can go, and with no expectations of how it will happen. They aren't overthinking the instruments and seeing impossibilities. I am. Your past is not here, I tell myself as the door opens and the kids file in. Tanya immediately sits down with her guitar and her notebook and starts strumming chords and reading some lyrics she must have written last night. Marie sets her bass amp by herself and then starts playing the bass line we went over in the bass lesson today. Drummer Gemma sits at the kit and makes faces at keyboard player Sarah, who practices her chords and tries to find the cheesiest 80s keyboard sound she possibly can. Singer Annie leans against the wall and looks around the corners of the room. Again, she reminds me of me. I'm sure some amazing story is playing in her head, but she would never admit it. Maybe she even has a song in there, but she just doesn't feel ready to share it. I feel the kinetic energy of the new band and their song hanging in the air waiting to be written. I think back to the workshop. Linda didn't start with instruments. She started with a mood. I can do that. I ask them what mood they want the song to portray. If they want to do a sad song about depression like they did in the workshop. And they all say, no, happy, let's do a happy song. Okay, now we need a happy beat. I look at Gemma with her straight shoulder-length hair parted in the middle and her smiley face crop top with Doc Martens on her feet, a look directly out of the early 90s. It's a style trend I've noticed on a few of the teenagers. The way her eyes quickly move around as she sits still suggests a certain kind of intelligence to me and maybe even a tendency towards mischief. I knew if I was in high school, I'd be attracted to her as a friend. I'm eager to draw her out of her shell, but I don't have to. She tells me she has an idea, and I ask her to show me. Instead of using the hi-hat, bass drum, and snare simultaneously like a typical drum beat would, she hits each drum and cymbal once by itself on each beat and goes around the kit in a circle that way. I like how concentrated she looks as she hits the drums. I know she's put some thought into this. Unlikely, anyone with more than two drum lessons would have this idea, because they would have it in their mind that it wasn't the normal way to play a beat. I imagine some old guy teacher saying to her, that's not quite right, and showing her to hit the bass pedal on the first beat and the third beat, and then the snare on the second and the fourth. I'm so happy she's not restricted by those rules. All drums actually have to do is keep a beat, and she's doing that. I had felt unsure about how little instrument training was provided for the kids before they're expected to write songs. But at this moment, I get it. A whole world of creativity opens up when you aren't worried about doing it wrong. Gemma's beat might not sound like a quote-unquote professional rock song, but I love it because it isn't normal. It's punk, and I can roll with that. 
How the heck has half the week gone by already? Can you believe it's already Wednesday, I ask my band members. Sarah says, right? We've made progress. Chanya had written some lines in her notebook at home after the first night of camp, and yesterday the band sat in a circle and worked out how long each line should be and which would be the verse and what would be the chorus. Tanya let the others decide how to use her lyrics and said it's okay if they don't use them. She's just trying to help. And I felt a zing of energy watching this collaboration. I helped them find the chords to go along with the melody they made up together. And then, to my amazement, the band practiced a song for the first time. Not everyone played the right notes at the right time, but a structure was there. And I feel so elated that they did it themselves, hive mind style. I just had to let go of worrying for them. Note to self for next camp. Just be patient, and it will happen. I ask the band to play through the parts they have so far. And then me and Danny clap along. And then silence. They're waiting for me to lead them to the next step. But I turn it around on them. So what should come next, I ask. Tanya, who so far has come up with 90% of the lyrics and the melody, volunteers more ideas for the next part of the song. I'm happy to see a girl her age so confident in her songwriting, and the last thing I want to do is turn down her ideas. But I worry that even though it often happens in real bands, that one person calls most of the shots, I don't want the other girls to end up feeling the way I had as a teen. That you just let the person with the most experience take over and write the whole song. I know Tanya wants to help the band get to their goal, so it feels tricky. She told me she writes songs on her own at home, and I want to encourage that, but everyone else isn't quite there in the confidence department yet. And like me, I think our designated singer Annie might also deal with her shrinking in relation to others. I want to give her space to contribute in her own time, but I don't want to end up with a song she has to sing that she didn't have anything to do with. I want everyone to just feel important. Tanya has been singing the main melody every time they play the song. And unfortunately, when she sings, she isn't simultaneously able to play the guitar chords right. However, when she doesn't sing and leaves space for our designated singer, we end up with an instrumental piece. Annie hasn't really used her microphone once yet, besides for making silly noises between practices. I had it turned up when we entered the room, and she immediately went over to the mixer, found her microphone volume, and turned it all the way down. Not wanting to embarrass someone who's shy, I pretended not to see it. She sat in a chair looking down at a copy of the lyrics in her lap, mouthing along with the microphone too far away to pick up her voice. Talking to her about the mic technique and posture only made her turn bright red. She's been relying on her bandmate to carry the song, and Tanya's clearly happy to do that. She wants to help, but I'm not sure if in the end it's actually helping or hurting. I decide to see what will happen if the dominant player is removed. I ask Tanya if she wants to work more on her guitar playing, and she says yes. So I take her out into the hallway and find some chairs and two Stratocaster guitars. I show her the simplified way to play chords using just the root, the fifth, and the octave, a power chord. Maybe something about that will click for her. She's been struggling so long to play the regular major chord shapes that introducing a new way of playing slows her down even more at first. The little bit of muscle memory she's developed keeps trying to put her left fingers back in the original places. But she watches me intently, and then she looks down at her own hands with a neutral face. She doesn't chit-chat or ask me questions like other students do to try to distract me. 
she goes straight to work without showing any frustration. I think this is the coolest. Watching someone teaching herself how to get her mind and fingers to work together without losing patience. How amazing humans are. Watching her figure it out herself is so much more fulfilling than reaching out and moving her fingers on the guitar like some teachers do. And I know it must feel like more of an accomplishment to her, too. I think about how her generation gets such a bad rap for having no attention span, for needing instant gratification and instant answers from phone apps and social media, to be totally focused on outside image instead of anything nearing substance. But in front of me, I see a girl being fully present and happy to learn something in the real world. This is one driven kid in front of me, I think. After a few minutes of practicing glacially slow, she starts hitting the chords. I tell her that she strikes me as someone who really cares about getting better at music and that I respect her drive. Then I mentally put on my big girl pants for the talk. I've been thinking of how to phrase this for a couple days at this point. Here it goes, my first attempt at guiding someone. I open my mouth. You're a really, really great singer. And I think it's helpful for Annie to see you singing and follow your lead. She probably actually looks up to you whether you realize it or not. Do you think we can work together to help her feel more confident singing? She nods quickly, excited to have a mission and to help her bandmate using her own skills. I knew Tanya wasn't bossy. She just had been the one in the room who was most willing to speak up. It seemed she had also been concerned about Annie's shyness. Together, we decide in the next practice session, Tanya will either not sing at all in order to practice her guitar playing, or sing quietly without a mic so that Anna can get used to hearing her own voice, and that we'll all cheer her on as she goes. As Tanya walks back to the room ahead of me, I realized none of my fears came true. I didn't make her feel defensive or upset or like she'd done something bad. I didn't think I had a shred of a teacher bone in my body. Who would ever listen to me, I thought. Maybe I do have something to offer these kids besides musical knowledge. Note to self, frame problems as opportunities for kids to use their skills to help out. And just be kind... And it'll work. As the kids play their finished song over and over, Danny and I jump around the room banging tambourines, singing along, yelling the chord names, and clapping like lunatics. My idea was to get them to let go of any self-conscious feelings about playing and singing because no one could look as silly as us. But as loud as I am... Annie is still quiet. She's still turning the mic down, holding it far away, and not projecting her voice. I use a break to say to her, Hey, I think the rest of the band might be having some trouble hearing you. And Sarah nods and then says with a tone of hesitation, Yeah, we kind of can't really hear you, so it's hard to know what part of the song we're at. Good, I think. They're showing her how she can be helpful to the group. But it doesn't really help. I've talked to the singing coaches and veteran volunteers all week, and I've tried every idea they've given me. I tried having Annie face the wall. She said she couldn't hear that way. I tried singing along with her in a silly voice. She just looked at me like, seriously? She said she couldn't remember the melody by herself, so I tried having the whole band sing the song together with her over and over while she held a microphone and the rest sang quietly without one, and still she somehow let her voice get completely drowned out. So then I tried letting her do it without having to hold the mic, just singing into the room. The band cheered her on each time. 
She blushed with each try, singing less and less, and eventually refused to try anymore, dissolving into a panic of, I don't know, when I asked her if there was anything we could do to help her. It was clear the last thing she wanted was more attention. I talked to Danny, and we decided to ask the vocal instructors for help. I get a pang of anxiety remembering that the show is only two days away. I know Annie knows the part. It's a really simple melody with rhyming words. But I also know that anxiety can make your memory turn to mush. For the remainder of the practice, I decide to focus on helping the bass player, Marie. The oldest at 15, I can tell she's bored playing two notes over and over. I decide to give her a challenge. I ask if I can borrow her SG bass, and I have the drummer play the beat of the song. I play the two root notes of the verse one at a time, as Marie had been doing. Then I show her how she could play a walking bass line by using the D and G arpeggios instead to give the song some sense of movement and simultaneously let the vocal melody be less naked. Her eyes widen and she smiles. That sounds so good. I don't know if I can play that, though. I tell her I think she can if she believes it. I know I can't make them believe in themselves, but I sure can't help wanting to. My alarm goes off. It's Friday, the last day of camp. I jump out of bed even though my body aches on the fifth 11-hour day in a row. But my mind is already going, and it propels me. Plus, my cat's been meowing at my door for an hour already. Suddenly, I have an epiphany in the form of a question to myself. How the hell did I ever gain any self-confidence? Maybe I can use that to help Annie. I was so shy as a kid that sometimes I couldn't even raise my hand to go to the bathroom at school. How did I fix that? I think what I did was take really small risks that still felt big to me. Like, I said, cool shirt to the guy at my college orientation. And I asked, can I try out to my first bandmates in high school? Each teeny tiny risk felt like it would be the end of the world if I failed, but it built my confidence to try the next bigger one, even if sometimes I did fail. Either way, I realized that nothing is really as big of a deal as my overblown anxious imagination makes things out to be. I grabbed my notebook on my nightstand to cement the idea in writing. I write, My confidence came from within me, not anything anyone said or did. As I make my coffee, I think that Annie will need to take her own risks when she feels ready. I guess all I can really do is be supportive, and I hope I'm doing it right. Okay, I will feed you! Keyboard player Sarah is in business mode as we enter our practice room for the last time. She yells to her bandmates, Okay, we have to play the song. We have, like, no time left. The drummer starts off. The bass comes in, playing the walking line. This has become my favorite song in the world. Danny and I clap along to the beat and bounce around the room. The jangly guitar comes in and Tanya nails the chords. The vocal melody starts here. I have my eyes closed, hoping that that will somehow let Annie feel more comfortable. But I don't hear her voice come in. I hear Tanya. I panic a little inside, but keep a calm face. I think of what the classic music teacher response would be abruptly stopping the music and saying, Annie, why aren't you singing? The concert is tomorrow. I feel pretty lost, but I do know I don't want to do that, at least. 
A knock comes at the door just then. I open it, and I am relieved to see two women who look to be in their 30s, one with punky blue-green hair and a lip ring, and the other with a skateboarder style of sneakers and Dickies pants. They're the vocal instructors coming to watch us practice our song. I know both women are older than me and have more experience teaching at Girls Rock. The band starts again, and again Annie recoils from the microphone and barely sings. The instructors stand still and watch. The antithesis of my silly coaching method of jumping around the room. One of the women asks if they can work with the band. I say, yeah, that sounds good, as I think to myself, thank Christ. I step out the door and sigh as I close it. It feels right to leave, because as much as I tried to hide it, I knew Annie sensed how much I wanted her to sing. My goal was to be encouraging and give her the space to sing, but I'm realizing maybe I'm the one who needs to be removed for that to happen. Maybe I'm actually the problem. My overthinking is getting in the way again. I need to let her sing for herself and not for me or even for the band. I know that my happiest moments have been when I'm doing something entirely for myself. When I'm mindfully in one action and not thinking about if what I'm doing is pleasing anyone else. Like when I'm playing music and my self-conscious thoughts can't even find me. I really hope she finds that space for herself. I watch the five little eight and nine-year-olds climb the stairs to the stage. A volunteer gently puts a small bass on one girl and adjusts the strap for her, and another volunteer puts the littlest guitar on another kid. They all wear shorts and matching white t-shirts with a black screen print of a cartoon sun with X's for eyes. All of them have cool footwear. The keyboardist has silver sparkle sneakers, and the bass player has Converse sneaker boots that lace up to the mid-calf. This bassist is one of my favorite from bass lessons. She wore her sunglasses to the last bass class to practice playing with them on, and now she's wearing them on stage, looking fearless. I think about how we got our camper surveys last night, and someone had written about me that I'm her bass hero. I love them all, but I kind of hope it was this kid in particular. I'm pretty ready to just adopt her. The tiny singer of this band has blonde hair and a short, boyish cut and glasses. She reaches up to the microphone that's been adjusted as low as possible, but it's still a bit of a stretch for her. Raising two fists in the air, she says, We're sunshine of death. The cheer from the crowd is huge. I look around and see about 200 people now in the music hall, from babies to grandmothers. Moms and dads, siblings and friends. I had never seen such a wide range of ages or types of people at a concert. A gray-haired dad wearing a tie next to a punk girl with purple hair. The drummer counts off the song, and the singer starts singing about how girls can be tough and do anything boys can do. I'm impressed with how they stay playing together all on the beat for the entirety of the song. An eight and nine year old rock band is pretty cool to see, especially knowing they just began playing their instruments like five days ago. The drummer in pigtails hits the drums with all of her force and sticks out her tongue as she concentrates. She doesn't drop the beat or get distracted once. I'm starting to feel nervous my band's up soon. They've been standing around me in the front of the stage as we wait for their turn to perform. We're all wearing matching purple shirts that we made at the silk screening workshop on Thursday. Danny drew the design. It's a cartoon of an eyeball with triangles for eyelashes. In the middle, where the pupil should be, are the letters DK. 
I-D-K. I wonder how long they'll all hold on to these shirts. How long they'll remember me. The MC announces, I-D-K. And I pat each girl on the back as they move toward the stage. While we had been waiting, they all begged me to come up on stage and play tambourine with them. They said they can't do it without me, it's part of the song. And I told them it's time to push my baby birdies out of the nest so they can learn to fly. And that's exactly how I feel. On stage, Tanya looks down at her wah pedal while Annie goes up to the microphone and introduces each band member. I see the volunteer at the mixing board turning up her microphone, but she's inaudible. Sarah stands behind the keyboard looking at me, shaking her head, mad I didn't come up to play tambourine, even though she knows I can't. Marie fiddles with the volume knob on her bass. Annie says, we're IDK, and the drummer starts the song. I start sweating immediately. Marie, holding a pick in her mouth, starts fingering the bouncy bass line. She decided it was easier for her to play this part of the song plucking the strings with her fingers and easier to play the rest of it using a pick. I remember how when I was 15 and just started playing, I did the same thing, alternating between the two. So I smile as I watch her looking down at her fingers with her teeth gripping the pick. The guitar and keyboard come in together with Tanya and Sarah doing a good job looking at each other to sync up. One keyboard note is off, but Sarah quickly realizes it and fixes the chord. I feel proud, but not surprised, seeing them acting so independently. I knew they would do it. I hope they feel proud of themselves. The instruments drop out, and the drummer starts pounding the bass drum. That means it's almost time for Annie to come in singing. I look up at her, and I see a girl who looks completely different than the one who had been practicing all week. She's standing up straight, close to the microphone. I know it's going to happen before it does. She opens her mouth and projects her voice confidently, and that's when I start to cry. A break comes in the song, and Tanya turns on the wah-wah pedal and rocks back and forth as she hits a chord on the guitar. The audience cheers. When they finish the song, I'm crying so hard I can't see anything, and also screaming a chant with the entire audience. I-D-K. I-D-K. They did it. I turn to Danny, who's standing next to me, And she has tears in her eyes, too. This has been the best concert I have ever been to. I helped make a band. A band of 15 and 16-year-olds is on stage now. I'm standing next to my mom in the crowd. She actually came out to watch my band. I was surprised after her comments about me spending all this time working for free. But we haven't seen each other in a few weeks. I look up at the stage to the vocalist of the band. She reminds me of myself at her age with her big baggy black pants and eyes permanently glued to the floor. I know that she also struggled getting her voice out in front of the other people during the week. But on stage, she takes the mic and powerfully sings the words she wrote about her pain. The song reminds me of Evanescence. I feel so happy for her and for what we're doing here. My mom looks at the girl on stage. She moves her mouth over to my ear and whispers, Look at the cellulite on her upper arms. What a shame at that age. I try not to let the negative comment register, but my stomach starts to sink a little. We aren't supposed to comment or think about campers' physical appearances for many very good reasons at camp. I had finally trained myself out of that awful critical mental habit and had shut down the constant, 
incessant, nitpicky voice that judges others and myself and makes me feel depressed. Until right now, when its hot breath is right in my ear. The stale cigarette smell the words came with creeps down my spine and starts to take away the ease and joy I was feeling in my body. I shiver even though I'm hot. I suddenly want to cover up my whole body. The only thing I had noticed about the girl's arms was the scarring up and down them. I was feeling love toward her because I know how important this moment of self-acceptance must be for her. After the bands are done, the staff and volunteers are called to the stage alphabetically to be thanked. A sizable woman with a buzz cut approaches the stage as her name is called, and as she steps up, my mom says right out loud to me, Look at that big fat dyke. My stomach drops another ten floors into my guts. I know from my week at camp that a large percent of the volunteers around me are not straight. I recall the stories I heard from them of wanting to hurt themselves or even considering worse because of the pain of not fitting in. I think about the focus here on everyone being comfortable being themselves. This is supposed to be the one completely safe place on the planet where we can all relax and not be self-conscious. It's supposed to be safer not having any men around. For a moment, I shuffle my feet on the sticky floor and imagine not existing. I look around and see who is close enough to have heard it. I don't know what to do. Until this moment, I've been in a cloud of love and inclusion, a feeling of oneness with all the people around me. That's not a thing I've ever felt besides, well, when I was in that culty kind of thing and it was all an illusion. Among the volunteers, we refer to this feeling as the bubble. At rock camp, you don't have to care about what you look like or if you make mistakes. You rock no matter what. This has been the closest to secure I've ever felt in my life. It's been the longest I've gone without criticizing myself, and I got here by accepting everyone else. I know from therapy that I cannot feel secure if I criticize others, that it's what isolates me and stops me from making friend connections in the world. Because how can you get close to people if you think they're all ugly and terrible and stupid and fat? But I also know that I was raised by some people who have opinions. I have worked so hard to escape that cloud that suffocating cloud and rock has been one of my greatest escapes because it does not look for perfection. But now that toxic cloud of self-consciousness has come back instantly and is solidifying itself around my head like a block of cement. I have a headache now. As my outsides shut down and I stop saying hi and looking at the people I know around me, my insides begin to boil. All I can think is, Jesus fucking Christ, what the fuck is wrong with you? I fucking hope no one heard that. I want to kill you and myself. Shit, 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 shit. I'm going to get thrown out of here. The woman standing next to us, another volunteer, could have easily heard her and could definitely be queer herself. I have no idea. My only response is to open my eyes as wide as possible and look directly at my mom. I accompany this with a small, sharp, ung noise. I don't dare open my mouth because I don't want to scream. I close my eyes and breathe in and out, trying to let the pain in my head leave, and I turn back to the stage. Eventually, my name is called, and I run up to join my fellow volunteers. Hilkin reminds us how hard we've worked and how much it means to the campers. My happy tears come back. At the end, I hug my girls goodbye. We take a picture together outside, standing in a line with our matching shirts, arms around each other's shoulders. Sarah and Annie each introduce me to their moms. Then the girls go home and I'm on the sidewalk back in the sun, 
with some of the other volunteers and my mom. One volunteer tells me to come for a drink and dinner at this bar down the street where everyone's going. I don't want to send my mom home since she made the hour and a half drive out to see me, but I also don't want her negativity near the bubble after that. Who knows what the hell else she could say? So I take her to a restaurant around the corner, feeling bummed to be missing out on bonding with the others, but feeling obligated to spend time with my mom, which I haven't done much of recently. As we sit down, she looks at the large tattoo on the inside of my left upper arm. I thought she might like it because it's a copy of a primitive death head from a 17th century grave. A cartoonish skull with wings and cute fat cherubs. Underneath, in all caps, is Memento te esse mortalem, which I think basically means remember to live because you are mortal. My mom and I share an affinity for colonial artwork. She grabs at my arm and says, So you got this tattoo because Dave has tattoos, right? Dave is my current boyfriend. The guy I sat next to in German seven years ago, who I randomly bumped into again a few months ago when I drummed up the courage to go to a show by myself in Lowell. He's the reason I haven't seen as much of my mom lately. I'd been seeing her at least once a week when I was single. And yeah, he has tattoos, but he's also a lawyer. Isn't that every mom's dream? And for now, I'm happy enough. Although this week, I haven't really thought much about him. I say, no, mom. And I explain how I had been thinking about getting it for a couple of years, actually, and finally found an affordable and cool women-run tattoo shop. She looks around the room and sees a woman with a tank top and a tattoo sleeve on her left arm and says, as if she's commenting on that woman and not me, I think tattoos aren't attractive on girls. She just looks low class. Hmm. Ending with a little ironic laugh. (laughs) Classic passive aggression. Gotta love it. I don't respond. I think of one of the women I volunteered with this week who is very tattooed. More than half of her visible skin is covered in ink, including her neck and face. I remembered her explaining at a volunteer meeting that she feels like people just see the tattoos and the flamboyant clothes she wears, and not her as a person. She said she got them to have people's criticism focused on her appearance rather than herself. I empathized with her thinking of the outfits I wore in middle school to take the attention off of my body. We've only just ordered our food and the next assault already comes. She scrunches up her nose and looks at my head. Mm, I don't like your hair that reddish color. You need to stop dyeing it with that shit out of the box from CVS. I like my hair color. I've gotten some compliments on it, and a lot of people think it's natural because I do have some red in my real hair color. She doesn't ask me a single question about the camp or my girls. I'm still in a gray cloud, and the rest of the meal is a blur. The food comes. She complains about it being too salty and only takes three or four tiny bites, then asks for it wrapped to go and gives me the box. She repeats a story from the news to me about people my age dying from drug overdoses, and I reassure her again that I would never, ever try any drugs. I listen to her talk about work, about some colleague being a bitch and taking every weekend off preemptively. She tells me she's worked so hard for so long and can't deal with this anymore. She says... You have to pray to St. Anthony to find the winning lottery ticket for Mama. I try to just take control of the conversation and explain how I like working with the kids because I can't think about myself while I do it. I can't be self-conscious. I try to explain how important that is, but she's on her own plane. I want to explain how hard it was for me as a kid to feel even okay about myself and how much this camp would have meant to me if I had gotten the chance to go to one. Every time I think about saying the words out loud, 
A tear starts forming, so I stop. But now camp is over, and my focus is snapping back to myself. The bubble is gone. I'm no longer floating around anymore. I'm back in my body, and I'm really feeling the weight of it. She says, I don't know where you got that insecurity of yours from. Not from me, probably from your father. I told him he was being too hard on you. I don't respond. Afterwards, I walk back to my car and pass the bar where some of the other volunteers are. I peek in the window and see them, but just don't have the confidence to go in. Talking to people I don't know well is so hard for me unless I have a burst of energy to push through my anxiety. And right now, I have the opposite. I have a void. Ugh, they've been talking for an hour now without me. It would be awkward to jump in, I think. I won't know what they're talking about. Maybe they wouldn't even want me there. I haven't developed a close friendship with any of them. They're all older than me and seem so confident and mature and they've all been to camp before. I'd sound like some fool. I worry. I walk toward my car, then back toward the bar, thinking, okay, maybe I can do it after all. Maybe I can actually go in there and make some new real friends. But when I get to the door, I chicken out and turn back on my heel and finally go back to the car as my chest starts to feel tight. I know if I just sit there being depressed and thinking of nothing interesting to say, I definitely won't be any fun to hang out with and I definitely won't make any new friends. I tell myself that the shoes I wore are hurting too much to walk back again. I feel angry at myself for having worn a skirt and heels, two things I pretty much never ever wear. I was constantly worried my butt was visible or that I'd stumble and twist an ankle. I just don't feel confident in this outfit. If I was in my normal sneakers and jeans, I'd feel comfy enough to just walk right into the bar, I tell myself, using that as today's chosen excuse for social anxiety and distancing myself. Who was I to wear such an outfit anyway? It was the confidence that had built in me over the week that led me to wearing this stuff in the first place, but now that it's drained out of me, I feel like a flamboyant idiot. Some gray clouds appear in the sky. I sit in the driver's seat with the windows down, and I start crying as some raindrops begin to fall on the hot pavement around me. It's one of those cries that feels like I won't ever be able to stop. Why can't I talk to people? I scream at myself aloud in my car. Why am I such a fucked up antisocial loner? I punch the dashboard. All week I felt like I had found my community, and now I can't even approach them. The most supportive, safe group ever in the world, and I still can't even talk to them. Jesus, I don't have a chance. Maybe I need to be on medicine, strong medicine. I try to focus on the rain and my breathing. I try to be mindful. But my breathing doesn't seem to work, and mindfulness escapes me as I feel depression's heavy gravity pulling me toward the center of the earth. What the fuck am I going to do without the bubble? I know my mom's negativity had started the downward spiral, but I don't want to blame anyone else for my mood, especially my parents. Our happiness is our own responsibility. I'm an adult now. I can't blame my parents for my unhappiness. I feel like I've done everything to try and fix myself. Maybe I just can't be fixed. My hand hurts really bad. Dear Young Adult Rocker, Remember how at camp we did the media literacy workshop? The volunteer leading the workshop put ripped-out magazine ads of women with impossibly long, thin legs on the table. 
The young campers worked to figure out what unwritten messages the advertisements were sending, such as, you must be impossibly skinny, but not show any ribs. You must have thick, wild hair, but a hairless body. The idea was to open their eyes to the subconscious pressures all around them. They thought of examples of similar messages that had been inflicted on them in other places, like kids talking at school and stuff on TV. A transgender girl volunteered with a message she'd received from the media, you must be cisgendered to be a real girl. It was an all-around, simultaneously depressing and enlightening talk. But I'm thinking now that there is a huge gap in that educational experience. What I'm saying is that when we talk about where and how we absorb negative cultural ideas about ourselves, we really need to talk about all the ways they are transmitted. One I never hear talked about enough is parents, and for girls specifically, moms. You can only hear 10 more pounds and you'd be perfect from the one person whose acceptance you value the most so many times, no matter how many other times she tells you you're beautiful. If we are lucky enough to have one, our first and biggest role model is a mother or mother figure. That role gives them more power over our psyche than the media and our friends combined. Our mothers see us as an extension of themselves because in some ways we are, whether we're biological children or not. These women have spent so much time and energy analyzing and working to improve their own physical appearance, as their mothers probably taught them to do, that they naturally turn this critical eye to us. Mothers treat us like they treat themselves because they feel we are an actual part of them, an extension rather than a separate human being. And so I hold no bitterness toward my mom for her comments. In her generation, caring about your appearance is the way of caring for yourself as a woman. Confidence comes from looking good for her. And I think there are class issues tied up in that since she seems the most offended if I do something she sees as quote-unquote unclassy. Looking poor is the worst thing you could ever look. But... She is nearly 40 years older than me. It's not the same in my world. Women with full sleeves of tattoos and green hair are sitting in boardrooms of organizations I admire right now. I want my own confidence to always come from my inner resources, like patience and forgiveness and kindness. You'll get closer to it soon. And then forget it. And then get there again, over and over. It feels like once you look good enough, you get to feel good enough. But if you're good inside, you should get to feel good enough no matter what you look like. And you can look however you want. My mom's comments and what we discussed in the workshop are simply a reminder of why the mission of the girls' rock camps is so important. These pressures for kids to be a certain way are part of what produced the movement that eventually spawned the camps. Use your mom's criticisms to remember, this is what we are fighting against. Ultimately though, I know you knew in your heart that your mom had not ruined everything. It just felt that way in the moment. There was too much good that had been done than could be undone by her negativity. It will be all right in the end. I know because of how I have come to understand the way good things and bad things work in this world. I know the power in a good thing can negate the effect of 100 little not good things. One negative thing won't stop us from participating in life. We won't refuse to ever get out of bed again for one bad thing. But one good thing can get us out of bed in the morning after months of not being able to. We can go through our day accumulating more little evils and microaggressions from people, pushing through them even though they slow us down some. But one tiny positive thing, 
like a girl finding her voice on stage. One thing like that can keep us going through dozens more days full of dozens of those tiny bad things. What my mom said was a small thing to say. It is what a small person says, and it has a sharp edge. But inside, it's just made of fluff because there is no real truth in it. What my mom said was a small thing. What Annie did was a big thing. And the big thing always wins. Next time on Dear Young Rocker, Chelsea takes a solo trip to Scandinavia. Dear Young Rocker comes to you from Double Elvis Productions and is executive produced by Jake Brennan of Disgraceland. This show was written and created by me, Chelsea Erson. I also wrote the theme song, I record and edit the episodes, and I create many of the musical pieces and sound effects you hear in the show. The other half of our two-person production team is Colin Fleming, who provides more sound design and music and also mixes the episodes. I would also love if you would join me on Instagram at Dear Young Rocker and follow Double Elvis too. I also have Facebook and Twitter, and I just really love hearing stories and seeing pictures of your own awkward young rocker beginnings. So please dig up an old picture and tag me, and I will definitely reshare it. And please, please share this story with anyone, anyone who has a young rocker in their life who you think could be touched by this because that's the whole point and write a review on apple podcasts if you like the show because that goes far toward the goal of helping kids feel less alone too thank you dear young rocker is a production of iHeartRadio and double elvis productions for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.